This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.christchurchsouthphilly.org. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. If you need a Bible, you can shoot your hand up in the air. We'd be happy to get you a copy of the Bible this morning. If you're new with us, typically what we do here at Christ Church is we pick one book of the Bible and make our way through it systematically. We have been doing that through the book of Judges, but a couple weeks ago we hit pause on that series because we were looking at this idea that we wanted to take a little bit more time to kind of unpack. And the idea is that life is best lived when God is at the center, not us. God does not want us to live these selfie lives where we're big and God's small. No, God wants us to live Godward lives. So we're taking a couple weeks to unpack a little bit more what does it mean to live a Godward life. We're calling this series Quorum Deo, which is a phrase that was used in the early church to describe living before the face of God. What we're going to see today in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, is that living before the face of God is not just about doing the right things. God's desire for us is deeper than just what we do. He cares about how we are. He's not just concerned with our doing. He cares about our being. Because how we are is actually what then shapes what we do. Before the start of the 2017 Eagles football season, their Super Bowl winning football season, after Nick Foles got signed, he said this in an interview. A lot of people don't know this. I'm going to share it right now because I think it's important. After my time with a certain NFL team, I wanted to retire. He's talking about his previous team, the Jacksonville Jaguars. This was a year ago. I wanted to retire from the NFL, and I really struggled. I couldn't pick up a football for about eight months. I had no love for the game, and it was tough. How he was made him feel like he couldn't play anymore. But Eagles fans are so glad that Nick Foles found his passion for the game once again. But this is often what can lead athletes to want to retire. They just lose their love for the game that they play. Whether it be the grind of a long schedule, their injuries, the setbacks, the disappointments, the pressures to perform. Over time, these things can work like acid and just eat away someone's joy in their sport. I think the same things can sometimes be true for our spiritual lives. Sometimes the grind of life as we experience disappointments, as we go through setbacks or engage with distractions, there can be so many things that we go through that just work like acid and eat away at a vibrant and rich love that we once had for the Lord. We don't necessarily quit the faith, although some do, but for many there can just become this accepted laziness, a gradual spiritual apathy, an attitude of, I'm just going to sit on the bench and watch what's happening, but I've given up kind of giving it my all. But through this short verse that we're about to believe, read, I believe that God 
wants us to know that he loves us too much to let us settle for anything less than the rich spiritual vibrancy that he has for us. God wants more for us than just knowing about him. He wants us to enjoy him, to delight in him, to have every aspect of our lives shaped by him. And he wants us to know how to use this one life, this one life he's given us. He wants us to know how to use it and make it count. And in order to do that, we need to understand what it means to live with zeal for the Lord. That's our topic for this morning, living with zeal in the Lord. Living with zeal in the Lord. God instructs us with these words in Romans chapter 12, verse 11. God speaks to us and says, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Let me read that again since it was so short. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Let's bow our heads and have a time of prayer. I just want to encourage you to pray to God yourself and ask God to speak to you this morning through the preaching of his word. Now would you be so kind as to pray for me because I need help to be able to speak in a way that's beneficial to you and glorifying to God, and so I'd appreciate your prayers. God, thank you that you love us. Because you love us, you want to speak to us through your word. And so God, I pray that today, by your Holy Spirit, you would give us eyes to see what you want to show us. You would give us ears to hear what you want to say to us. And you'd give us hearts to receive what you want to give us. pray you do this for the good of our souls and the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Three points this morning as we consider what this text is saying to us. I want us to see the call to zeal the call to zeal, then we're going to look at the enemies of zeal, the enemies of zeal, and then finally, we're going to consider the source for zeal. So the call to zeal, enemies of zeal, and the source for zeal. First, the call to zeal. I think sometimes when we hear that word zeal, we can think about a particular kind of personality. We think about someone who's just really passionate about things. For me, I think about the legendary Eagles player, Brian Dawkins. Like, oh, that's a zealous person. I mean, this guy would come out of the tunnel growling and roaring like an animal, crawling on the ground, just going nuts. He was, he was called Weapon X. I mean, the guy was just full of passion and played the game with boundless energy. And so we can think that, oh, well, that's what zeal must be. And because we think that that's what zeal must be, well, we write ourselves off. I'm not crazy like that. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not passionate person like that. That's just not my personality. But notice that this passage talks about zeal as a command. It says, do not be slothful in zeal. Paul's not addressing this 
to any particular person who has a certain kind of personality. No, he's writing this to the whole church in Rome. And so when he says, do not be slothful in zeal, which is another way of saying, be zealous, this is a command for everybody. God wants each of us to live with a zeal for him. Which means that zeal is not about a personality. Zeal is a spiritual calling. And so what is this zeal that God is calling us to? Well, when Paul originally wrote this letter, it was written in Greek. And the word that's being translated here from Greek into English, this word for zeal means to burn with a strong desire. So that's what zeal is. It is burning with a strong desire. And what is this desire that we are to burn with? Well, we're helped to understand what Paul is communicating here as we go on and see that he connects not being slothful with zeal to what at the end? He says, serve the Lord. In the Greek, there are two words that get translated as serve. One word means to help or assist. The other word means to perform the actions of a slave. The word that's being used here is that performing the action of a slave. See, this is what zeal is. Zeal is being mastered by someone or something. And it is then living in their service. And so zeal is not merely an emotion although certainly emotion is involved. But zeal is not merely an emotion. Ultimately, zeal is about our devotion. Zeal is an earnest commitment. Zeal is a single-minded determination. Zeal is an unswerving resolve that we are going to be mastered by the Lord. I think author J.C. Ryle captures this call to zeal well in the following quote. He's writing a book to men, but his words apply to all of us. He writes, a zealous man is preeminently a man of one thing. It's not enough to say that he is earnest, hearty, uncompromising, thoroughgoing, wholehearted, fervent in spirit. He sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. Thing. He is swallowed up in one thing, and that one thing is to please God. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he has health or whether he has sickness, whether he is rich or whether he is poor, whether he pleases man or whether he gives offense, whether he is thought wise or whether he is thought foolish, whether he gets blame or whether he gets praise, whether he gets honor or whether he gets shame, for all this, the zealous man cares nothing at all. He burns for one thing, and that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. One thing. In that, don't we hear the words of King David echoed when he writes in Psalm 27.4, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all my days, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to acquire in his temple. Don't we hear echoed the words of the Apostle Paul when he writes to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 3, One thing I do 
Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the upward prize of the call of God in Christ Jesus. Or don't we hear the words of Jesus as he commends Mary because she chose the better thing and sat at his feet. Luke chapter 10, verse 42. Zeal is about being consumed with one thing. And that one thing is a burning desire to be single-mindedly devoted to God. Being zealous for the Lord means that if you go to school, it's about God at your school. If you have a job, it's about God at your work. If you are married, it's about God in your marriage. It's about God in our friendships. It's about God everywhere we go. God wants to be so great in our lives that zeal for him marks everything about us. He, he wants to be more than just our first priority before we move into other things. He, he wants to be the sun that's at the center of our universe around everything in our life orbits and is controlled by and is informed through. And he wants this because it is our zeal for the Lord that brings honor to the Lord. God wants us to live zealously for him because it's our zeal for the Lord that brings honor to the Lord. There's a taco truck that often opens up on the weekends, not very far from here. And whenever it pulls up to this one spot, there's a line that will form, sometimes wrapping around the whole block. People stand in that line for hours. I've heard the average wait time is about two hours. And I've driven by and I've seen people standing there in rain and even snow. They are zealous. They are devoted to getting those tacos. And you know what their zeal tells me? Those tacos must be pretty good. Friends, God wants our zeal for him to say to the world around us that we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Psalm chapter 34. He calls us to zeal so that we might live lives that give him much glory. And he wants us to live with zeal for him, not only for the glory of his name, but also for the good of our souls. Isaiah chapter 26, 3 tells us, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. When we only care about the Lord, then we're not going to be anxious or worried about other things. Zeal for the Lord brings peace to our souls. Zeal for the Lord brings forgiveness instead of bitterness as it makes us generous with our love because we are so filled with his love. Zeal for the Lord brings joy that is Boundless, because it's not grounded in our circumstances, but comes from delighting in the unchanging God. Zeal for the Lord gives us an identity that's secured, because we're not really worried about other people and their opinions of us. No, we truly only care about the audience of one. You see, if you want more peace, if you don't want to be shriveled by bitterness and unforgiveness, if you want a deepening joy and a more secure sense of self, then what you need is greater zeal for the Lord. Zeal for the Lord glorifies God, and it is good for us. 
But if we want to experience greater zeal, then we need to understand that there are enemies that want to fight against the zeal. If we want to experience greater zeal in the Lord, then we need to know how to fight the enemies that want to take away our zeal in the Lord. So let's consider point number two, the enemies of zeal. The enemies of zeal. Paul tells us to not be slothful in zeal. That word slothful means to stop paying attention to or to get lazy about. Zeal is kind of like a campfire. I love going camping. I know that's not everyone's cup of tea. Some people are like, I work hard so that I don't have to sleep outside. Uh, but I love being out in nature. I think it's just so peaceful and restful. My favorite part of camping by far is at night when you just sit around a campfire. There's just something so mesmerizing about sitting around a campfire and watching the flames and roasting marshmallows. Some of the best conversations I've ever had in my life have happened around a beautiful fire. But if you know anything about campfires, you know that they don't just keep burning naturally. No, in order to keep them burning, they need to be consistently tended to. If you get slothful with them, if you get lazy and don't do anything to help them continue to burn, they will gradually die out. It doesn't happen quickly. It's not like they're like flames one minute and then gone the next, unless you're cheating and using a gas campfire, but that's like not even the real thing. No, it's a gradual decline. The flames just get smaller and smaller over time, eventually turning into smoldering embers, and then even those get less and less, and eventually it's just out. And so if you want to keep the fire going, you have to watch the size of the flames. And if those flames start to get smaller, if they start to wane, then you know you need to take action. In the same way, our zeal will wane over time if not tended to. And so we need to watch for the signs that our flame for the Lord is beginning to burn a little bit less. One of the signs might be you do not engage with singing praises to God like you used to. You find yourself holding back from expressing emotion or just you honestly don't really feel much emotion. You just kind of look at the words on a screen and it's so disconnected from what's going on in your life. Another sign could be maybe prayer has become something you do as a checklist instead of recognizing that in prayer you have a deep dependency on God. Maybe it's become hard for you to engage with the sermon. You used to hunger for God's word, but now you just find yourself often thinking, what is for lunch again? Maybe you've become quicker to be ungracious towards others. Maybe you find it easy to hold on to bitterness or to be provoked to anger. Maybe you do not want to serve like you used to. Maybe there's a lack of Bible reading in your life. You find it very easy to scroll through social media for 45 minutes, but to sit down with God's word for five minutes seems like an impossible task. These are all signs that the flame of our zeal for the Lord is growing a little bit less. Or maybe you're sitting here thinking like, man, I'm actually not sure if zeal for God is something that would ever have described my life. Friends, few things should get our attention more than a lack of zeal for the Lord. Because some of Scripture's strongest warnings are for those who have lost their 
zeal. In the book of Revelation, chapters 2 through 3, Jesus comes and rebukes different churches. He rebukes the church in Ephesus because they had lost the love they had at first. He rebukes the church in Sardis because while they had a good reputation, they were hollow and empty inside. He rebukes the church of Laodicea, calling them lukewarm, saying they are so nauseating that he's just going to spit them out. A lack of zeal is a very serious thing. But there can be so many things that cause us to neglect tending to our zeal in the Lord. There are so many of these enemies, and I think biblically there are really, there's many, but there's probably three that rise to the top. I think the first enemy of zeal is business. It's busyness. It's going to be hard to have zeal for the Lord if you're constantly filling your life with different things, always running around and just not having much time to be with God. This is the culture that we live in. We live up here in the northeast of America in a go, go, go culture, right? Don't turn down any opportunity. And as Christians, we can sometimes spiritualize it. Well, God's opening this door, and then God's opening that door, and then God's opening this door. And it's not that we get involved in doing bad things, but remember how Jesus corrected Martha because she was so busy doing all these things for him and then neglected actually just sitting at his feet. Listen, Satan is more than happy to open doors for you. Satan is more than happy to give you good things to do. They'll make you so busy, you will neglect the one thing that you need to do, which is be with the Lord. Go through the gospel and read about how many times Jesus said no to doing good things. Note how many times he said no to healing more people. He said no to touching people with very real needs. Notice how many times he said no to preaching longer. Why? Because there are just moments he needed to go be with the Father. Friends, we have lost our way if we think we can, be, we, we can afford to be busier than Jesus. Now, Jesus was not lazy. I think it's safe to say that Jesus got a lot of stuff done. So this isn't an exhortation towards self-indulgence. Don't waste the one life God has given you. No, go hard for Christ and make it count. Jesus lived intentionally, but he did not live hurriedly. And he never allowed anything to interfere with his time with the Father. And so I just wonder who here, you've been putting a lot of hours in at work. You find yourself regularly scheduling things that even take you away from this corporate gathering because you just have more that you need to do. Or you're always traveling. Again, traveling for good things. Visiting family over here, going to this over here, going to the next concert, going to the next event, the next thing. But you're just consistently running around. If you have kids, you're trying to give them every possible opportunity. You cart them around like you're an Uber. You just don't get paid. <laughs> You can't say no to them because you don't want to hold them back from anything that might be a great opportunity for them. Not realizing that Jesus said, what does it matter if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Being busy will distract us from tending to the fire of our zeal for the Lord. And what's really scary about it is sometimes we can get so busy that we're not even noticing that our zeal for the Lord is starting to wane because we're too busy to even pay attention. We need to fight against the enemy of biz business. And the second enemy, the second enemy of zeal is the is secret sin. 
is secret sin. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, being pure in heart does not mean being without sin, because none of us will ever be without sin in this life. 1 John 1, 8 makes that very clear. It says, he who says he is without sin makes God to be a liar. And so if you think that you're sinless, then you're saying that God is a liar. That's not a good thing to do, so don't do that. And so being pure is not about being without sin, but it is about being without secret sin. See, it's one thing to struggle with sin. It's another thing to harbor and feed it and not confess it. Listen, friends, we can't expect to have secrets in our lives and to see God filling our lives with zeal for him at the same time. When David looked back on the time when he was living in secret sin after having committed adultery with Bathsheba and then killing her husband, Uriah. As he reflected on that time and wrote Psalm 32, this is what he says in verse 3, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. There was just this withering away of his spiritual life. Listen, indulging in sin might not always lead you to make a shipwreck of your life, but it will always lead to your zeal being diminished as you experience a decreasing sensitivity to sin and an increasing accommodation of your sin. A 17th century pastor named Richard Baxter, I think rightly said, all apostasies, meaning turning from the faith, all apostasies have small beginnings. All apostasies have small beginnings. So I just want to ask, what is potentially what is potentially a small beginning in your life? What is something that you've gotten used to tolerating? Listen, it is one thing to struggle with a persistent sin, to feel consistently tempted in a certain way, but man, you're fighting. You're involving other Christian brothers and sisters, and they're with you, and they're praying for you. They're holding you accountable. They're encouraging you. It's one thing to struggle with a persistent sin, but you're fighting it. It's another thing to be content with that sin and okay about it. And think, oh, well, sinners are just going to sin. Friends, that's what's known as greasy grace. (laughs) Greasy grace is a grace without repentance. Greasy grace is a grace that believes in the cross of Jesus, but is not willing to take up your cross to follow Jesus. Greasy grace goes down easy, like a five guys burger. But if that becomes your diet, it will make your relationship with God sick. Friends, God's grace for our sin should never be an excuse to not repent of sin. And the first step of repentance is always confession. See, confession is a belief that God's forgiveness is enough for us to come out and be honest. And when we come out and we're honest, that allows Jesus to minister his grace to us by reminding us of our need for his grace. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. See, it's when we bring our sins out and confess them to Christian brothers and sisters that our sin begins to weaken and wither and die 
and we become healed by the good news of Christ. So confess and have your seal restored. Don't live in secret sin. The third enemy of our zeal is idolatry. It's idolatry. Idolatry is a particular kind of sin. Idolatry is giving something or someone the primary place in our lives. The primary place that only God is meant to occupy. Our text says, serve the Lord. Idolatry is serving something else as if it is the Lord. Now, I don't think many of us consciously do that. I think many of us wake up today and be like, I'm just going to serve this idol today. But I think one of the ways that we can discern what might potentially be idols in our lives is by paying attention to our feelings, particularly our feelings of stress, worry, and anxiety. What are the things that make you scared, make you anxious? What are the things that stress you out? Think about that for a second. Isaiah 26.3, which I already quoted, says, God keeps us in perfect peace when our minds are fixed on him. And so when God is first in our minds and first in our hearts, then peace will be the experience of our souls. And so when we are lacking peace, when our peace is disquieted, when we are fearful, anxious, or worried, pay attention to those things. There might be neurochemical reasons going on. You might have been through some trauma that are provoking that response. You might need some therapy. Praise God for psychologists. Praise God for psychiatrists. Praise God for good medicine. Those are expressions of his common grace. But what we're afraid of can also often reveal what we are worshiping. If you're constantly fearful of danger, it's probably because you're worshiping the false idol of safety. If you're constantly worried about financial security, it's probably because you're worshiping the false idol of wealth. If you're constantly fearful of other people's opinions, it's probably because you're worshiping the false idol of approval. And we can't have zeal for God when our emotional energy is already being spent, being consumed with something or someone else. It's going to be hard to have zeal for the Lord when you already got all these other things that are constantly pressing on your mind. And so if we want to experience more zeal in our lives, we need to repent of our idolatry. We need to lay those things down and ask for God to center ourselves on him. If we want to experience more zeal in our lives, we need to know how to fight these enemies of busyness, secret sin, and idolatry. We need to learn how to fight these enemies, but not just fight them. We also need to learn how to then draw fuel from the source of our zeal. We don't just put off the things that are hurting our zeal. No, we need to take things in that will fuel our zeal. So let's consider the source for zeal. It's not a random thing that Paul is mentioning zeal here at this point in his letter to the Romans. As he comes to the end here, he's not just giving a bunch of disjointed thoughts as he kind of wraps things up. No, for 12 chapters, Paul has been doing one thing. And that one thing that he has been doing is he has been extolling and exulting in the glories of the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so when you know that the gospel is for all people, Romans chapter 1 and 2, because all people have a need for it since all people sin, Romans chapter 3, but there is salvation by faith 
in Jesus, Romans chapter 4, because Jesus died for sinners, Romans chapter 5, and that because of Jesus' death on the cross, sin has been dealt a death blow and will not rule over us, Romans chapter 6, even though we still struggle with sin, Romans chapter 7, there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, and nothing can separate us from God's love in him, Romans chapter 8, and God's love for us in Christ came for us before we were even born, Romans chapter 9, and it's a love that includes all people from all nations, Romans chapter 10 through 11, we hear all these things about the gospel, and then we get to Romans 12, and what is just happening is zeal for the Lord starts to burn within our hearts. Hearing the gospel should make us burn to know him, burn to love him, burn to please him, to live for him, to serve him. The goodness of the good news should make us want to live with a burning desire and a single-minded devotion for this good Lord. And so if you want more zeal for the Lord, soak yourself regularly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want more zeal for the Lord, soak yourself regularly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God gives us very practical ways that we can do that. Soaking ourselves in the gospel comes through reading the Bible. Because Jesus says in John chapter 5, 39, that all scripture is ultimately written about him. And so one of the ways that we love God is by getting to know the good news of God and what he's done for us in Christ through reading God's Word. We read God's word, not just for information, but to develop a relationship with God because this is his word of revelation. And so we come to God and we say, God, show me Christ in these pages. We soak in the gospel through the scriptures. We soak in the gospel through prayer. I think often we think about prayer primarily as asking God for stuff. But we need to refrain that. Prayer is not primarily meant to be about asking God for stuff. At least it shouldn't be. Prayer is primarily meant to be about relating with God. How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father is where we start. That's relationship. Our Father, hallowed be your name. It's expressing affection. I want to see you honored. You're so great, I want to see you treasured. Our Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. I'm not asking for what I want to start. I'm asking that I be surrendered to what you want. And then we get on to give us this day our daily bread. It's not that we don't ask God for stuff. That's not where we're meant to start. My kids ask me for stuff, and I'm fine with them asking me for stuff. I want them to believe that, like, I care about what they want, even though I don't give them everything they want. And so I'm, I'm more than happy with them to ask me for stuff. But more than just giving stuff to them, man, I just want to be with them. I just want to enjoy a relationship with them. Friends, that's what God wants with us. He just wants to be with us. And that's primarily what prayer is meant to be about. Prayer is about communing with God. It's about enjoying Him. It's about lingering in an awareness of His presence and the goodness of the gospel. Because every time we pray, friends, when we pray, we're experiencing the gospel. I mean, think about it. When we're praying, we are addressing the holy God. There's only one way that we as sinful people can address the holy God. That's because of the good news of what Jesus has done. It's because of Jesus. The holy God who should be our judge becomes our father who invites us to draw near to his throne of grace. 
And so every time we pray, we're living in the goodness of the gospel. Prayer is an experience of the gospel. And, and so often, prayer and scripture, they're, they're meant to go hand in hand. We soak in the gospel through reading scripture and then through taking that scripture and then just praying it back to God. I think about the, the famous chapter of the Bible, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Man, just take that. And you can pray about that for a long time. God, thank you that you're my shepherd. I'm so grateful that you're someone who wants to care for me, provide for me. That's what shepherds do for their sheep. I'm so grateful that you want to lead me, Lord God. That's what shepherds do. They, they take sheep where they need to go. Jesus, thank you that you said you're the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. You're not just the shepherd who leads me. You're the shepherd who died for me, right? You could spend a, a whole couple minutes just praising God and enjoying him through thinking about that scripture, the Lord is my shepherd. Use scripture as a cue to then pray to God and soak in the goodness of who Christ is. We soak in the gospel through the Bible, through prayer, and through worshiping together as a church. I mean, this is why we gather, right? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25 commands us, do not neglect to meet together, as is the habit of some. God has created us with an inbuilt need to be together. It's just how we're wired. Because we've been made in his image. We're image bearers of God. We're made in his likeness. And so who's God? God is a being who exists in community. Right? There's one God, but this God exists in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so as those who are made in the image of God, as those who bear that image, we too are people who need to exist and live in community. And so read the New Testament and you'll see on almost every page, exhortations to be together in the gathering of the church. Colossians chapter 3, verse 16 says that the word of God dwells in us richly as we gather together for worship. Romans 16, 25 says that we're strengthened together through the preaching of God's word. Acts 14, 22 says we need to go and plant a church here so that this place could be strengthened in the Lord. Listen, you can relate to God personally on your own for sure. Praise the Lord for that. But we have sold out to a modern, westernized concept of Christianity and we think that it is primarily about just us and our relationship with Jesus. Friends, God has made us for more than just him and me. He's made us to be part of a we. Our relationship with the Lord requires us to be regularly strengthened in the community of his worship, the church. And so listen, you can't be fervent for the Lord and disobedient to his command to neglect this gathering. It's not going to work to want to be zealous for God and disobedient to God at the same time. Right? We need, to, we, need, we need this. We need this time together because this is part of how the flames of our hearts are stoked for Jesus. And so reading, praying, worshiping as church, these things, are, they, they help our, our hearts soak in the waters of the gospel. But zeal for the Lord does not come just through soaking in the gospel. Now look again at our verse. It says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. That phrase, be fervent in spirit, depending on your translation, will either have a small s or a capital S. And those translations that have a small s, there's usually a footnote. Uh, if there's ever a footnote in your Bible, I'd encourage you to read it. That means there's probably a translation discrepancy there that's worth looking into. When the Bible uses a small s spirit, it's referring to our spirit. When it's using a capital S spirit, it's referring to the Holy Spirit. 
the third person of the Trinity. I think here this Bible passage is very clearly meant to be translated as the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. I think that for several reasons. First, whenever Paul writes about our spirit, he usually uses a different word than the word that's being translated here. But the word that's being translated here for spirit, he almost exclusively uses for the Holy Spirit. And it's the word that he's used throughout the book of Romans to talk about the Holy Spirit. And so, for example, um, in Romans chapter 2, we're told that we're made alive by the Spirit. In Romans chapter 5, verse 5, it says that God pours his love into us by the Spirit. In Romans chapter 7, verse 6, it says that we serve God in the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 2, says we are set free to live for Christ by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, says we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, says the Spirit assures us that we're children of God. One of Paul's big points in the book of Romans is to help us understand that life as a Christian is meant to be a life that's lived through the Holy Spirit. And each and every one of those words about the Spirit is the same word that we see here in our text. Also, another reason to think about why this is actually referring to the Holy Spirit is look at the word that comes before it. It says, be fervent in the Spirit. That word fervent means to boil. Something cannot make itself boil by itself. Water does not come to a boil by itself. Things need to be brought to a boil by an external heat source being applied to them. And so here's what Paul, inspired by God, I believe is telling us. Zeal for the Lord comes from soaking in the gospel. That's what he did for the first 12 chapters of Romans. But then God wants to take those waters and bring them to a boil by the Holy Spirit filling our lives and bringing the heat of his flame. Listen, every Christian is indwelt by the Holy Spirit upon conversion. I think 1 Corinthians 12, 3 makes that very clear. So we don't need a second blessing where we weren't filled and now we are filled. No, no, every Christian is filled by the Holy Spirit upon their conversion. But we're told that as we've been indwelt by the Spirit, we're actually commanded in Ephesians chapter 5 that we need to keep on being filled by the Spirit. It's a continual need that we have. And so it's not a second blessing, it's a third blessing, and a fourth blessing, and a fifth blessing. We need the Holy Spirit continually to be filling us. Galatians chapter 5 verse 25 tells us that we're to live in the Holy Spirit. Friends, the, the Christian life is a spiritual life, which does not just mean that we think about spiritual things. No, it means that the core of our relationship with God is that we are spiritual beings who are connected to him spiritually through the ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit. And so here's what's going on in this verse. Zeal for God is not something that we learn to conjure up within ourselves. Zeal for God does not come through us learning how to do all the right things so that zeal just kind of then happens. Zeal for God is not about us being spiritually strong and self-sufficient. No, zeal for the Lord comes from understanding and embracing our dependency upon the Spirit of God. We don't pursue, pursue zeal through our own strength, but through the ongoing filling of the Holy Spirit's power. It is through our neediness that God meets us with his fullness. It is in our awareness 
that we have a desperate need for God, that God then pours himself into our lives and gives us more of himself. And so, yes, we need to take action to fight the enemies of our zeal. We might need to change some things. Yes, we need to pursue soaking our hearts in the waters of the gospel through scripture and prayer and corporate worship. Yes, we need to do some things. But friends, what we also need is to embrace our desperate need for the Spirit of God to come and bring his fire to make our hearts boil with zeal for the Lord. What we need is we need to be a people who cry out to God, Spirit, Burn away my desire to busy myself with all these things. Burn away my fear that keeps me silent about my sin and shackled in shame. Spirit, burn away these idolatries that so easily ensnare my heart. And Spirit, make me burn to read scripture and burn to pray and burn to be with your church so that I might burn with the gospel and knowing you and loving you and wanting to serve you. Friends, the source of zeal for the Lord is the truth of the gospel set a flame in our hearts by the Spirit of God. So living before the face of God is not just about what we do. It's about how God wants us to be. He wants us to be a zealous people. God loves us too much and he is too committed to his glory to allow us to settle for a cold, lifeless Christianity. He wants us to be a one thing people. He wants us to burn for him. That's what brings him glory. That's what's for our good. That's how life is meant to be lived. And so we soak in the gospel and we cry out for the spirit to make us boil for Christ. And so Christ Church, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the Spirit. And let's serve the Lord. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.